So I'm walking down Virginia Street in Charleston, West Virginia, and I'm right near the First Presbyterian Church. This is the church that I, I grew up in. I was, I was baptized in this church. And it's, it's kind of right at the corner where there's the Catholic Sacred Heart Cathedral, and then right across the way is St. John's Episcopal. And lately, I've been hearing that there's been a rise in homeless people living in Charleston, and it causes people concern. And I wanted to stop by here tonight and see if I could see anybody who was camping out under the awning of First Presbyterian Church. It's an old, beautiful church, kind of has a Italian architecture type of look to it. In the front of the church here at about 11 o'clock on a, on a Friday night um, is lit up with floodlights. And at the foot of those columns, you see uh, sleeping bags and belongings that belong to some homeless people who are camping out for the night. So can you tell me what's your name? Randy Lance. And, and uh, have, have you slept here at First Presby before? <coughs> it's, it's about my second or third time. Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? I'm originally from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. But I, uh, I got married twice. I had two kids. Uh, then... Went to prison in 2010, got out in 2016, and just couldn't find my way back. It was the third time in prison. The other two times I found my way back into the world, but this time I couldn't. I'm Trey Kay, and from PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting, you're listening to Us and Them the show that tells the stories about the things that divide us. The Department of Housing and Urban Development reports that homelessness has been on the rise since 2016. The pandemic only exacerbated what had already been an acute shortage of resources to help people living on the streets. At the height of the pandemic, Randy says he couldn't find any place to stay in Georgia. Shelters were restricting entry for fear of spreading the virus. He ended up spending a month at a shelter in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Randy didn't like that shelter, but he met a guy who was heading back home to Charleston, West Virginia. So he tagged along. He's been here for almost two years, but struggles to find work because of poor health. I've got all kinds of arthritis problems, and I've got all kinds of problems. So, now working's over, it's over. I'm, I don't have any money, and I don't have my Social Security, so I don't have any money. So I'm like, stuck like Chuck in the middle, you know? So I'm just being homeless. Randy just turned 61. He can't draw on his Social Security yet. On this January night, the low temperature was 30 degrees with northwest winds. I should add that I brought food to offer anyone I found sleeping outside on this night. Right now I'm not cold because I'm covered up with a blanket and everything. Yeah, but when you walk out in and stuff like that, it's colder, yeah. 
So what do you do in the day? They let us stay there. They usually kick us out of there at 9 o'clock over there where they feed us. St. John's. Over at St. John's. Episcopal Church. But since it's so cold, they let us stay on. Lunch then starts at about 11.30. It gets over with at 1, so we get to stay from like 6 in the morning till 1 o'clock. After that, we have to leave and usually just go sit somewhere at the park or somewhere and uh, wait for night to start rolling over, go to our spot we picked to sleep at, do it again. (laughs) So tell me about surviving. I mean, right over just... Across the street is is St. John's, and and they have the manna meal program where where you can eat. Oh yeah, uh, St. John's Church is great. They feed us. You can talk to somebody if you want to, but people that aren't homeless have no idea what we have to go through to be homeless. They have no idea. They need to be homeless for about a week to see how it is to be homeless. That way they would not be so rigid at us, okay? They look at us like we're, they think we're murderers or something. Yes, a lot of us are felons, I am, but we've tried to change our life, but we may have changed it, but we still can't come out of it. You know what I'm trying to say? How are just the normal everyday people that you meet in Charleston, how how do they treat you? On the norm, um, there's some that that are real nice and everything, but the sacred heart, mothers and fathers and stuff, (laughs) they don't want us near them, and they definitely don't want us near their children. Definitely don't. What's that feel like? At first, it feels degrading that they think that we're not a human being like they are. But after a while, you just get used to it. They don't even think about how our life is. They just want to continue with their life. And they think that if we're close to the kids or something, that it's going to rub off on them or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I would think that, that maybe they think that you're going to hurt or harm them or, or yeah, abuse that. them. Or, yeah, or that, yeah. I don't know. They think we're serpents or monsters or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and you feel like they're in one country and you're in another country. We're segregated. From coast to coast... Communities large and small are struggling to provide shelter to people without housing. In November, the mayor of New York City announced a program that would institutionalize homeless people with mental illness. More recently, the mayor of Los Angeles pledged to transition 17,000 people off the streets within a year. In Charleston, West Virginia, Approaches to address homelessness have created us-and-them divisions within divisions. Churches allowing overnight tents on their property see some of their congregations unhappy with that move. Like many cities, a patchwork of providers 
serves Charleston's homeless population. In 2019, the city's newly elected mayor, Amy Goodwin, launched a program originally intended to combat the opioid crisis. It has expanded to include homelessness. Area churches have long provided resources for the city's homeless population. Manna Meal, a soup kitchen run out of St. John's Episcopal Church, has been serving meals for more than four decades. Other faith communities across the valley provide shelters, laundry, food pantries, and other services. When Bill Myers arrived as First Presbyterian Church's new head minister in August 2021, well, he too was homeless, sort of. My wife uh, hadn't moved down to Charleston yet, and we were in the process of looking for a home. And so I slept here at the church. Uh, you know, we got showers, bathrooms, a hundred kitchens, and you know everything you need. So I camped out here in my office. It wasn't long before the pastor became aware of the church's transient guests who lay their heads on the building's front steps. Most everybody I met, you know, they, they shared some common challenges. Um, sometimes it was PTSD because they were veterans. Sometimes it was substance abuse. Sometimes they were kicked out of their, their family for one reason or another and didn't have a place to go. But they all had a variety of unique elements to their story as well. And so in the course of getting to know people and, and hearing their story, I'd ask them, is this what you want for your life? Uh, is this the end game? Are you going to be on the street the rest of your life? And in most cases, it wasn't. They just didn't know how to get off the street. And in some cases, we got people off the street. Sometimes it was to go to rehab. Sometimes it was we found shelter. But that was, you know, that was my end game, is just to get to know who they were and how we could help them. So Pastor Myers allowed them to camp overnight on the front steps. But children in the church's preschool program run up and down and around those steps every morning and afternoon, and Myers wanted to be sensitive to that. So he did establish some ground rules. I asked them to clean up after themselves, and uh, in many cases, they were getting the garbage can bringing it around front, filling it up, taking it back, and dumping it. They were actually caring for the space, and we saw a decrease in some of the negative stuff that we'd been experiencing. We asked them to leave when the children arrive in the morning, and we checked two or three times a day to make sure the steps are cleared during the day when the children are coming and going. And I said, for the most part, we get pretty good cooperation we're working very closely with the police department. If they see illicit, illegal behavior, they have permission to come and enforce the law. However, not everyone was pleased. Community members, both in and outside First Presbyterian, expressed their concerns to Pastor Myers. Can you talk to me a little bit about the controversy of people sleeping under the awning of the church? Sure. And, and yeah, you know, I, I think, frankly, it disturbs everybody. We don't want to see human beings living like that. So I understand where people were concerned. You know, there are sanitation issues. Um, there's real fear and there's perceived fear. But again, 
you know, we didn't put up a sign that said, hey, come all uh, who are needing a place to stay and hang out on our steps. They were here. And so either we ignore them or we try to engage them. Uh, we had probably as many as six or eight at the most. Now, if you talk to people in town, you know, it was 20. But never did we have that many people. It was usually about six to eight. Most of the time, it's one or two. It will go days, even weeks, without anybody. But it's the fear, and, and somebody happens to drive by, and they see someone, and they, they think the worst. And the perception is that if they're here, it must be unsafe. And again, that's coming out of their fear. And sometimes fear is reasonable, and sometimes it's unreasonable. First Presbyterian Church sanctioned overnight camping starting in the fall of 2021. As the colder winter months settled in, some Charleston residents were fed up. By February 2022, homeless encampments had become a focus for the West Virginia House of Delegates. House Bill 4753 would target homeless encampments, including those outdoors and others consisting of tiny homes, those located within 1,000 feet of a school or licensed child care facility for young children would be deemed a public nuisance. Pastor Myers responded from the pulpit. Fear tells us we must keep those people, whoever they are, away. Fear tells us we can't go into those neighborhoods. And we have to keep those people from coming into our neighborhood. Fear tells us those people are the problem. But faith tells us something different. Faith tells us, like it or not, those people are members of our community. In Christ, they are members of our family. We must love our neighbors. After a public hearing on the proposed legislation, the bill failed to advance. But Pastor Meyer says there's continuing debate over how best to help people living on the street. There are people, I guess, who are more like yourself who are saying, let's treat them like humans. But there are some Charlestonians who feel like, you know what? These churches here in town, they're feeding, and this preacher at First Presby, he's uh, letting them sleep under the awning. I mean, we're just making this area into a country club for homeless people. Now, you're smiling as I say that, but what do you think about that? There are a lot of perceptions. There are a lot of beliefs. We have folks in our church who give money above and beyond their pledge for me to go out and buy gift cards. And so I buy you know, $15 gift cards from McDonald's or Wendy's, you know, places like that. And, and some of the folks that you're talking about would probably say, well, see, you're enabling behavior. And it's like, well, okay, are people really on the street because once a month they might get a $15 gift card from Pastor Myers? You know, no. It's an entry to a relationship. It's Hey, could you use could you use some lunch? Uh, what's your name? 
how are you doing? Things going okay? So it's, it's a way to start a conversation. Um, we have homeless people in Charleston because of the economy in Charleston, because of substance abuse, because of mental illness, because of behavioral disorders. You know, the community, uh, whether you're talking Charleston, whether you're talking Charleston and the state of West Virginia, whether you're talking about us and our nation, you know, we together have to come together and address these issues. The only way, quote unquote, they're gonna go away is if we find a way to help them overcome the challenges that have put them on the street to begin with. I left Pastor Myers and made my way out past the chapel where I'd spent so many Sunday mornings. It's hard to argue with Myers' assessment of the challenge before us. We know this country is struggling to provide affordable housing and mental health resources, even for those who are not homeless. I mean, we talk about those issues a lot on this podcast. But how far are we willing to go to meet those needs? As a community, a society, a nation? And do we have the stamina for that journey? Providing sustained care for homeless people has eluded even well-meaning and determined communities. It has also divided them. Standing across the street from Pastor Meyer's church, I heard another perspective. My name is Ashley Switzer and um, have was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, raised five children here and I am a teacher. What do you, where do you teach? I teach at Bible Center School. Describe for the listener where we are right now. Okay, we are in um, on Virginia Street in the heart of downtown Charleston. Uh, we are actually on the corner. I'm looking at my uh, grandson's uh, preschool playground right behind me. So I see a swing set and a really nice looking jungle gym and some of that, that kind of cushy uh, rubber foam. What do you call that? Which makes it so that it, you yeah, don't hurt yourself. Right. It's a very safe playground surface. However, Ashley says there are elements outside the playground that cause her concern. There was a group of parents from the school right here, Sacred Heart, who uh, actually called for a meeting with the mayor of our town because of um, instances uh, with homeless or criminal vagrants on uh, school property, near school property, uh, banging on uh, parents' car doors, children in the back screaming. There have been children playing on this actual playground where homeless people will threaten them. My grandson has witnessed someone walking down this very sidewalk with no pants. Ashley says she feels the atmosphere created by Charleston's homeless population has changed since she grew up here. I asked her what she thinks about the pastor allowing homeless people to camp out in front of the church just across the street from her grandson's preschool. And there's a long pause. As long, I mean, when you're right to live however you want, or behave however you want, 
When, when your right to do that, as you see it, begins to infringe on another person's right to feel safe or to be safe, or infringes upon another parent's right to protect their child, I think that's problematic. I think this minister at First Presby, I think his heart is in the right place. You know, I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think anybody's a bad person. I think we're all human beings, and we all um, have to assume that, you know, we're, we're coming at different p- problems with, with the right heart, with the right intention. Although Ashley Switzer questions Pastor Meyer's decision to let homeless people sleep outside his church, she does agree with his assessment of the issue. Having a home is not the problem here. You're right, it's not. And, and unless, if you're going to solve it, then you have to figure out what the root cause of the homelessness is. Is it because of drug addiction? Is it because of mental uh, disorders? Is it because, you know, what is the problem? Ashley admits she doesn't have the answers, and she relies on her Christian faith to guide her thinking. I do believe that as Christians, we are to love your neighbor as yourself, put others first. And and so somebody who is homeless would be your neighbor? Absolutely, yeah. And do the homeless have a place in this community, in Charleston? And, and if they do, are there conditions that they need to meet to, to, to be a part of this community? I think there is a place for the homeless people here if they want help and they want services. But I, I think there are conditions to everything. If, if you don't go to work, you get fired. If you're late to your job, you get fired. You know, if you... If, you don't have a job, you don't have money. There, there. I feel like there's conditions. That's just life. And we can't all just do what we want to do, right? I mean, I think the obvious answer is we we can all do what we want to do. I guess if we kind of are living in our own space, mm-hmm. but if we're going to be in a living together, right, in a community, maybe, then there are conditions that everybody should abide by, right? Like respect for other people, like to not commit crimes against other people, to not threaten children. I mean, there's things, there's, there are social rules, right? And there are laws on the books to protect people and to protect children, to protect homeless people. Am I making sense? Do I sound cold? And- <laughs> and not compassionate because that's not where my heart is. I don't know if I can really take issue with what Ashley Switzer is saying. As a teacher, a mother, a grandmother, of course she advocates for something we all do, protecting children from harm. And yes, we also want to be compassionate as a community for those who are struggling and need help. But Ashley questions how we're defining compassion. How is it compassionate to throw someone a tent and make them comfortable until they die? Because if they stay out on the street and they continue to, to, to be needle dependent, that is their fate. 
How is that compassionate? We're just going to make them comfortable until they go? I don't, that's not compassion to me. Homelessness is not compassionate. The experience of homelessness is traumatic. After a short break, we'll hear about different approaches to homelessness at the national level. I would also argue it's not compassionate in our public policies when we consistently choose not to fund housing, not to raise wages, to allow people to not get health care. Homelessness isn't an accident. These are conscious public policy choices. You're listening to Us and Them. This program is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Daywood Foundation. In difficult times, music gives us peace, brings us together, and helps heal us. It calms our nerves and brightens our days. That's why we're bringing you classic episodes of Mountain Stage on air and in our podcast. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find something that's familiar or brand new and feel the power of live music on our website, mountainstage.org. Hey, Trey here, and you're listening to Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX. Every year, the United States government attempts to count the number of homeless people in the nation. On a single night in January, representatives of the Housing and Urban Development Department take what's called a point-in-time count. There were 582,000 people who were homeless. 40% of them were unsheltered, meaning they were living on the street. Barbara DiPietro is the Senior Director of Policy for the National Health Care for the Homeless Council. She oversees their federal advocacy and policy analysis. And that is one of the highest percentages of unsheltered that we've ever seen in a point in time. The report breaks down numbers by state, urban versus rural, and the numbers of those who are sheltered versus unsheltered. California has the highest number of homeless people and 76% of them are living unsheltered. However, in some states like Vermont, Maine, Wisconsin, and New York, more than 90% of homeless people are provided shelter. DePietro says there are different factors at play. The four states that you had uh, mentioned have a right to shelter law, and there are many more shelters and shelter beds to accommodate people in those states. So New York, as you mentioned, has a right to shelter. So if I am experiencing homelessness, New York has an obligation to give me a shelter bed. In California, no such policy exists. There is no obligation to give anyone a shelter bed in California. And then, so that's one piece is a policy piece. Another policy piece is California has some of the highest costs of living in the country, particularly in their housing market. So as the costs of housing continue to go up, fewer and fewer people can afford that housing. And without a right to shelter, street is the only option that people have. So that's those two things come together where some states choose to do more sheltering than others. Now, what's important to appreciate here is that shelter is not housing. And so we can offer someone a shelter bed, absolutely. And that might help like in the immediate moment. But shelters don't do anything to end homelessness. 
And when we think about this from a public expenditure, it costs us $1,000 a month to put someone in a shelter and we can't give them a housing voucher for $1,000 a month. Like these are the kinds of ways that we misuse the resources that we even do and we call it a solution. But shelters aren't a solution. And so I would also say that what do you imagine happens in most communities when you want to propose to build a homeless shelter? Not in my backyard. And it's hard enough even to get an affordable housing program approved through a NIMBY process in many places. So, So a lot of this is less about focusing on more shelter and more about how do we make housing more affordable, both to prevent people from becoming homeless and to be housing people who already are. The cost of housing continues to rise across the country, and sustainable policies for housing homeless people are in dispute. It's no surprise that more people are living on the streets. And that's obviously very concerning. So what are we doing as communities, though? We're sending in the police. Break up that encampment. You can't be there. This is public space. You've taken over this park. Back in 2016, Charleston's then-mayor, Danny Jones, held a press conference announcing his decision to clear out a homeless encampment. At 2 o'clock, our personnel, uniformed, uh, and our public works department and all sorts of social services agencies are descending on Tent City to dismantle it. The so-called Tent City was an encampment on private property with an estimated 20 to 30 residents. These are folks that don't want to obey any rules, and they also want to drink. And they want to drink, uh, they want the ability to drink around the clock. And we, uh, that's their business, they just can't do it there. And there's been all Cities across the country use a range of strategies to empty homeless encampments. But DePetra argues clearing them out is counterproductive and expensive. In forcibly removing folks and throwing away all of their stuff, how have we actually solved anything and only just recreated the same problem? Only now our guy doesn't have a tent, doesn't have a blanket, doesn't have anything to his name, doesn't even have an ID because you throw it away. There's millions of dollars that go into replacing those IDs, replacing that medication that municipal authorities threw away. In fact, just a year after Charleston's tent city was cleared, the city settled a lawsuit that included $20,000 for reimbursement of personal items lost in the raid. And you're just forcing your guy to go somewhere else. So now maybe behind the Walmart or maybe further out in the woods, but nowhere did we provide any solution to the problem at hand. And that's that these folks have nowhere to go. DePetro says there are successful supportive programs that combine affordable housing with social services. These can include a nurse, therapist, social worker, and psychiatrist to help monitor health conditions and medications. And she says those examples are not a new model. How do we support seniors in this country? For years and years, we were talking about home and community-based services, keeping grandma out of the nursing home by putting a ramp at her house, putting grab bars in, maybe put some things into the bathroom in the kitchen to help our elderly people stay in their houses longer and be safe. And I think that if we adopt the same approach, and and we are in many communities, just not at the scale that we need to be doing, um, that's a winning model 
also one that has a lot of evidence base behind it as not just cost effective for, for public expenditures, but also yields better outcomes for the people that you're serving. But it's, it's happening at a fraction of the rate that it needs to happen. And the result is an expensive cycle of mental health and medical care, and in some cases, incarceration. If you believe that human beings deserve housing, if you believe that human beings deserve health care, how is it that we don't mirror our public policies to honor that? So when we think about people living on the street who have significant health conditions, where is the humanity in ignoring that? Where is the humanity in letting him die when, if you put him in a house and give him a case manager and a nurse, he can thrive? He can go and and reconnect with the family that he likely has, become a functioning, more productive member of society. But we don't even give people the chance. In addition to the policy trends she studies, DePietro has noticed another growing trend, compassion fatigue. At the beginning of COVID, everyone was very concerned. We, We put in eviction prohibitions. We put uh, homeless people in hotels. We rushed to help people because we, we were all so concerned about our own safety and the safety of others. Look at how that's changed. And now it's the, we're done with this. We're tired of seeing these homeless folks. Let's, let's sweep them. We're go ahead and evict away and raise the rent. We're done with that. It, it's, this is the way that human beings do is that they get tired of being compassionate, particularly when they don't see solutions to the problem that they think should have been solved. But what we do is we pin the blame on the individuals that are at the brunt of that problem rather than looking at the public policies that created the problem to begin with. It's a lot harder to change a public policy and ask our public policymakers to put money into housing. It's a lot easier to say, I'm not giving you a sandwich because I don't like the look of you. But since the problem seems to be so multifaceted, layered, and often entrenched, is compassion enough? So it's one thing for me as a human being to another human being on the street, but what does compassion look like in our healthcare policy, in our housing policy, in our drug policy? What does compassion look like in our law enforcement? That's where we need to focus is in those macro level system responses because that's what's going to solve homelessness. I think in this administration, the passion is to help people for holistic, long-term results. That's Taryn Wary, director of the City of Charleston's CARE program, or Coordinated Addiction Response Effort. There's funding to, you know, that has been secured to help people for long-term fixes, not just in and out of this program or that program. What do we need to do for sustainability so that we're not just continuing to, you know, run around the hamster wheel? We're figuring out long-term solutions and getting that person off the streets or healthy and in long-term recovery or whatever it is. The CARE program began under Charleston's current mayor, Amy Goodwin. Shortly after taking office, she realized the complexity of the issue and talked about it on a video produced by a West Virginia State University student. It's really easy, I think, for some folks to say, this is a homeless issue, we have to get people housed. Well, that sounds 
like a really great answer. But there are a multitude of challenges to making sure that that happens. Right now, we have places for people to be housed, but you are suffering from mental health, if you are suffering with um, opioid addiction or other types of addiction, it's much more complicated than that. In the city of Goodwin Boston, has adapted the city program to recognize the complexity of dealing with substance abuse, mental illness, and more recently, homelessness. And so all of those three things came together. I truly believe our model that we have here in the city of Charleston is one of the best models that we have across the country. Can we do better? You bet. And every day our team goes out and they try to do better for more people. Care Director Taryn Wary says they managed to address both addiction and homelessness. Currently, we have five people. We are in the process of hiring more. We have a homeless outreach coordinator. We have a mental health outreach coordinator. And we have a, our quick response team, which is a national program, um, is housed under our care office as well. You know, we take a very hands-on, boots-on-the-ground approach. Every day we're out there, we're in the streets, we're, you know, on the banks, we're in abandoned properties, we're talking to people and meeting them where they're at. We have individuals who have lived and learned experience in all fields, people who are in long-term recovery, who have been in active addiction themselves, who have found recovery and are still maintaining sobriety and recovery this day, um, who are members of our team. We have individuals who have been homeless and on the streets without shelter. Uh, we have individuals on our team who have and do suffer with mental illness. I think you... you automatically gain respect with somebody when you can personally talk to them about your experiences. So what are we looking at here? All right, so what we got here in the trunk is they're like hygiene bags. So in the bag, we have a Ziploc bag, which contains their toilet paper and their socks and some ointment. Then we have some bathing wipes. And inside we also have a bottle of water a hairbrush, a comb, a little travel pack for their toothpaste and a brush, a razor, shaving cream, and I have 15 here with me today. Summer Short is a peer support worker with Covenant House. It's one of the nonprofit service organizations that works with the city's care team. Summer packs her car before heading into the field to meet with clients. And then in the back, seat of the car. I've brought more socks and I've brought six coats with us in case people need coats. I've brought snack bags that include just little snacks for them to eat and then I have 15 blankets and then I have Narcan. Always have Narcan. You've been trained how to do this outreach but you also kind of know from the other side, like kind of what it is that you need or what, what type of help that you would want to get if you were living on the streets. Yeah, I've had 20 years of experience on that. So started out with having a car wreck. And in the beginning, I wasn't on the streets. For the first five years, you know, I had people, I had family. After my accident is when everything went absolutely berserk for me. In the beginning, I When she I was, was 21, Summer was injured in a car accident and was prescribed opioids. Over the next five years, she transitioned to heroin, which led to her leaving home. 
so tell me what it was like for you on the streets. Where were you living? Um, how were you? How were you taking care of yourself? Stealing, lying, cheating. Um, that would have been how I took care of myself. As far as how I was living, dirty, um, high, just, just absolutely horrible. Heroin meant more to me than anything or anybody in this world. What, what was it like? staying on the streets where, where did you stay um, how did you keep yourself safe if you could I lived in Huntington West Virginia we didn't have any running water or electricity the house itself my friend owned so it's not like we were um, on private property so we didn't get in any trouble for anything like that um, you're not really safe there is no safe when you're on the streets we drive over a bridge that leads out of downtown Charleston into Kanawha City, just over the river. Summer pulls into the back of a motel parking lot. We're going in behind the hotel here. There'll be a split in the fence. Uh, we'll go through it and then we'll go back here underneath the underpass. And there's an embankment back there that has a bunch of tents set up. Summer peels back the chain link fence and heads in. A little bigger than you. <laughs> Summer is going over and talking to a woman who looks like she might be late 20s, early 30s. And she's, she's camping under the bridge. And uh, they wanted me to wait before I come over. So are you usually down there? Yeah. Okay, um, I'm gonna give you my phone number, okay? I'll actually give you my car. It's got my name on there call this number right here on the back and I will I will you just tell me exactly where it's at and I'll bring you guys down Narcan I'm gonna give you a couple bus passes thank you so much and then uh, would you prefer a little Caesars card Dollar General or Taco Bell or McDonald's that's a hard decision I guess Dollar General There's a $10 card. That's how I get my daughter's Valentine's right there. Thank you so much. Can I talk to you for a second? Mm -hmm. Can I sit down next to you? Yeah. Can you, would you be willing to tell me your name? Mm-hmm. Tabitha. Can you say why you're out on the streets? Drugs. Pretty much. That's what leads down to is drugs. And do you feel comfortable saying what, what type of drugs you use? Mm-hmm. Well, it's... Now I just use heroin, but it started out from marijuana and then on down the line. Do you, do you want to recover? Or, or yeah, I do. I, I like I cry every day trying, but it's so hard, you know. It's so, so hard to just get off of it with no support system. So two years you've been, you've been living on the street? Yeah. Have... I would feel like you'd feel unsafe. At times you do, but you just adapt and get used to it. You have to. <laughs> when do you think you've had enough? I don't know. You think I've had enough. It just, I feel like I've had enough. I know I've had enough, but I guess it's not enough. <laughs> Tabitha, I'm, I'm grateful that you've taken some time to speak with me. Thank you. Be careful because the bridge is... Have you been down there yeah. before? Okay, the bridge is a little... Wobbly. Yeah. As we make our way under the bridge to the encampment, 
I ask Summer how she responds when folks say they just want the problem with homeless people to go away. These people that are going through the issues that they're going through that needs help, they are part of the community. We all make one big community. And if we don't stick together, none of the problems are going to get solved. If you believe in somebody and you show them that it's possible and you give them hope, you give them something to fight for. I don't, I feel like I'm trying to take away from the problem, not add to it. If you have someone out here who doesn't have anything to eat, they have no clothes to put on their back. It's our jobs as humans, common courtesy to help one another, not because they're a drug addict or because they're dirty or because they're a criminal. They're your brother and sister. You're supposed to help them. We're human. That's what we do. So here we are. There's, I'm, I'm over there. It looks like there's two kind of like little camping tents. Uh, so how many people are living here? There's two right there. The one, uh, Tabitha, that we had just spoke to, she lives in a little tent there. There's one farther down that has, I think, four people, but they're not there right now. During the day, they're out and about. Uh, they usually don't come back until night. And, and what they would perhaps go into Charleston or some yeah. kind of populated yeah. place to... They're out doing their hustle to get their money together so they can get better. And hustle means steal or it could be sex work or it could... Whatever they have to do. And, and uh, I, is this the type of place that you would have lived? I mean, if it would have came down to that, absolutely. It never, is, is this pretty bad? Is this? I, this is, I, I would say this is pretty bad, but for me, it was a bandos. For some reason, I felt safer there with walls around me. So bandos were like an abandoned building. Yes. Um, New York City, we call them a squad. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, but this, you know, can get pretty daggone cold yeah. here in February. Yeah. And all they have is a camping tent. They do. Um, a lot of them, that's like their home. They have a lot of different things in there. They have uh, end tables that they could put stuff on. They have their blankets, their clothes, all that good stuff. So. But were, were you saying that before that in, in some ways, you, you described that some of them were feeling ill. Some of it has to do with, with uh, opioid use. Some of it is just they're ill anyway. But were they dope sick? Um, yes, a couple of them down there were dope sick, but there's a couple of them that also have medical issues that go, um, that they're taking antibiotics and stuff for, that may be caused from the drug use, but it may not. Maybe if I keep coming back every day, one day they're going to reach that breaking point and they'll be ready to go. And when they are, I'll be here to take them. So we're looking here at graffiti that's kind of under the bridge. And one thing I'm noticing is the word H-O-P-E. I'm just curious what that means to you. Hold on, pain ends. Say it again. Hold on, pain ends. You always got to have hope. Pain ends eventually, but you got to work for it as well. I mean, sobriety is not something that can just be handed to you. And I think that's what took me a long time was I always wanted what everybody else had that was sober, but I wasn't willing to work for it. So until I got past that, and even us being out here doing what we can and, and trying to trying our best to, to get people into recovery, we can't want it for them more than they want it for themselves. All we can do is be the person that believes in them and, and help them through it, but they have to want it.
Back at Covenant House, Summer introduces me to one of their clients who's decided he's ready for a change. My name is uh, Dave Sharp. Um, born in 78. And I was born in Chicago. Moved here when I was a kid with my mom. David returned to Chicago as a teenager, and things were good. He had a union job while training as a commercial diver. By 20, he was earning $35 an hour. But he says the pace was just not his rhythm. So he moved back to Charleston and fell on hard times. My mother killed herself. My marriage fell to sh- There were other things going on. I was struggling with finding a place to live. I was struggle, struggling with keeping my, my bills up. I was, uh, the bedbug epidemic was here. Uh, that sh- infested my house. I had to move. I left everything behind. I didn't even take a stitch of clothing. I had a problem with um, coping and dealing with my uh, grief. But I was, uh, I was given chances, I was given options, I was given all of this stuff, and I chose not to take it, not to accept it, and to do something different. I could sleep out there and fall asleep, and I couldn't do that in an apartment where I had stresses like paying my power bill and paying my table and paying... I didn't need that right then. I needed some freedom. Last night, where you where you laid your head to sleep, where was that? I'm staying in an apartment in a house, East Washington Street. And matter of fact, these guys put me through a program that they have that helped me out with my rent, my utilities, and everything that it takes to get started somewhere. And um, because I have an income, um, but I didn't have enough to move. I didn't have enough to get started. I didn't have enough to pay a deposit. I didn't have. It's not even designed for me to have that. So these guys know this. These guys here, Covenant House, that was the place that these good folks found for me. And um, it made me cry whenever they found it. It, I have to still take a breath because I'm an emotional person. I know that the goodness that came from there was pure. They speak in action. They speak in a, in a way that uh, only a tuned ear can understand. That's all I can say about that. David is just getting set up in his new apartment. But that doesn't mean he's kicked all of the bad habits from living on the street. He says he still uses drugs. My worst addiction is a heroin. It, it takes away my ability to be physical. So I'm stuck with that until I can break free from it. I'm just about, I've just about got it. What I understand, you know, I have to slowly kill my lifestyle. And if I don't, I'm gonna end up dead soon. And I know that. Some people may question that Covenant House would help an active drug user get off the street and secure long-term housing. But with a place to live, David reduces some of his risks. He says what stays with him is the hatred and cruelty people showed him when he was living on the streets. I've had people swerve at me. I've had people throw bottles. You know, nobody asked for that. Even if it was a choice or not a choice, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, we have just much right to walk around as anyone else does, live and breathe just like anyone else does. And I would still say we. 
don't care that I live in a house today or not. Those are my brothers and sisters out there. I care about each and every one of them. As David talks, I see Summer Short, the Covenant House outreach worker, nodding her head. I understand that because you spent so much time with in, in, in this interview, they will say those people, those people are us. Yeah. Those people are our people. Yeah. Though I may be in a position to where I'm three years sober today, right. that I am comfortable going out there and trying to help someone the same way that someone helped me or I wouldn't be sitting here today. So those are my people. Hadn't been for previous experience or previous uh, a relative uh, feeling that she wouldn't be able to help me. I wouldn't, she couldn't, if it, if it weren't for her own past, how could she help me? When you can change the circumstance of someone else's, don't forget to do the right thing because it could be everything for that person and that individual. It could be insignificant to you, but it can mean the world to them. You've been listening to Us and Them. Our team for this episode is me, Trey Kay, Mitch Hanley, and Kate Smith. Michael Lipton, Tristam Lozow, and Ahmed Solomon wrote and performed the Us and Them show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. The marvelous people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make Us and Them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, the CRC Foundation, and the Daywood Foundation. Special thanks to West Virginia State University student Justin Walker for use of his interview with Mayor Amy Goodwin. You know, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Share them with us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at UsThemPodcast. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the Mentorship Program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. We'll see you next time on Us and Them. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.